Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interviewed Karianna Solfiel Eid from We a cargo bike subscription service based in Oslo in Norway. Karjana won this year's inaugural Micromobility Accelerate pitch competition that we had at Micromobility Europe conference in June. She was selected by a group of judges as the best presenter on the day for a new micromobility service or product. The judges noted her quirky style, but also the very solid business that they've built in Norway. One thing that we didn't talk about actually on this episode was her low cost of acquisition and the very low levels of churn that they've had with their subscription business as it's grown very quickly. I really enjoyed this conversation and have really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know Karianna over the last couple of months and I've come to the realization that I don't include enough conversations here about micromobility for families or women, something that I am intending to try and do better on. If you have any ideas on who to cover, please message me on Twitter. If you've not yet heard, we also have Micromobility America coming up in San Francisco on the 15th and 16th of September 2022, and are expecting over a thousand people from hundreds of companies to talk about the latest in micromobility technology, services, companies, and more. I will be up there, and am looking forward to seeing you there, hopefully. Please come and join us by getting your tickets at micromobility.io. And now, here is Karianna. Let's go. Welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Karianna from We in Norway. How are you going today, Karianna? I'm doing very good. I'm uh, going out foraging in a while, so I'm um, just popping by the office to talk to you. Oh, marvelous. Excellent. Well, and you were just mentioning that you just got back from Eurobike when we were talking just before this. And uh, you're the first person who I have had peripherally involved in uh, Eurobike. And Eurobike, for those who maybe don't know, is it, is it five days? I mean, it's like... This thing's giant. It's like the exhibit. Yeah, I think so. And it's it's super overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, the things that I've heard about, Horace has been a couple of times and has just said it's, you know, the place that you go if you're interested in, in, in bikes. And, and Euro, obviously Europe is like the biking center. And uh, this is the biggest bike trade show that in the world, I think. But yeah, how how did you find it? I mean, it was uh, uh, before we kind of get into the rest of we because I, I do want to get there. Yeah, I think uh, my colleague Amish has been there uh, a lot because he used to work with uh, bike sharing systems. So it's been kind of a thing you go to if you want to talk to uh, different like component producers and you want to see what's happening next and new launches and talk to people and. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a place you need to be if you're involved in something regarding cycling. And I've never gone before. And it also, I, I think it used previously, it was in this kind of more difficult city to access. Like, But now it's moved to uh, Frankfurt. So it's easier for us to get there. Excellent. And you were mentioning just before that, that it's sort of ableist, that there's a big focus there on the puritanical nature of it. I mean, I've been super interested in cargo bikes since I first got one in like 2013 and it just totally blew me away. 
And the thing, like ever since that I've been getting into, there's kind of an active cargo bike community here in Oslo. And uh, the thing is that a lot of, especially women who need to transport kids and stuff, they come in there and they, when they sort of think or get to the point where a cargo bike could be something for them, they would gravitate towards something that feels safe. And that's a, a big three-wheeler box bike. And then the instant you sort of say that into the forum, it's like, no, no, you need a two-wheeler because it's better because of the change of systems and you have to be able to do this and this. After a while, I tend to agree because I'm more experienced now, but there are also clear benefits from a kind of sturdy three-wheeler that you don't have to like put up something to make it stand still. So you can actually like, I don't know, help a kid or leave the bike without it falling over and then there are of course downsides with it as well but I was like kind of puzzled with the notion that you were always told what kind of bike you should have even if you sort of landed at something else yourself yeah so I actually want to start out here with one congratulations so Kariana was the winner of this year's inaugural Micromobility Accelerate Pitch Contest for Europe, in which we had uh, six companies up on the stage pitching VCs for, you know, for, for their business around, you know, hey, this is what this is what we're doing. This is this is how the business works. And Kariana took out first prize this year. So congratulations. But I would love to just have the story of, you know, like, you know, I loved the story personally because it was so different. And, and I thought maybe what we'll do is we'll start out with a little bit about we and then the backstory of how it ever came to be. So do you want to just sort of give the, the story of we and what you're doing now and then how did you come to do that yeah i mean we is a car replacement cargo bike subscription service so it's a cargo bike subscription service that's kind of all included focusing mainly on families and urban households that want to cut down on one or all cars and it's something that i've been working on the the idea has been with me for a long time and i've also been doing some consulting work doing bike subscriptions like 2018 and then when the pandemic hit we had this vacuum in time that allowed us to actually go for it so um that's when we started and launched and ever since it's been like a wild ride <laughs> Yeah, yeah, going gangbusters. So you offer these these subscriptions, but I, I loved the quote that you started off the pres- your presentation with, which is from Cindy Gallup, which is that there is a lot of money to be made from taking women seriously. And uh, I, I, I love that quote. And I, I'd love for you to just talk us through, because you, you did a great job yeah, explaining why it is specifically that you target women, like what is it around micromobility for women that you think is such an interesting angle and one that hasn't been traditionally well served? My point to begin with is that uh, weirdly enough I'm not, not like super into bikes I'm more into the bike as a means of making cities better I used to work for the uh, Oslo PTA Ruter on a combined mobility pilot where we as a consultant where we work with making like digital services to see whether we could shift people away from using cars in their everyday life so we did a lot of research and we also worked a bit with uh, Norwegian Institute for Transport Economics it all started actually when they did this big EU project called Tempest about car sharing. And um, two of the um, uh, presentations I saw there, there were like two key insights for me there. And one of them was that the main driver that shifts people into a car-based lifestyle is when you have kids. 
So that's like the one thing. And also, I've also been like an avid uh, car sharer for a long time. And one of the things that wasn't really presented as an insight, but more of like a like a by sentence was that a lot of the people interviewed in the car sharing uh, project said that e-bikes or cargo bikes was sort of a factor in the fact that car sharing actually works. So, and I mean, the way that society is built and is continuously built around car, without car, you're sort of fucked. It's, you have to have something that will make car sharing work. Because even in in Norway, which is like where car sharing has kind of taken off, it's still only 7% of all cars. All car trips or all cars? So, um, so... But I, I mean, cars held like the of the whole entire car fleet. Ninety three percent is owned or leased, and seven percent. This is twenty nineteen numbers, but seven percent is shared. And uh, I, I sort of also my own experience is that e bike slash cargo bike is sort of a key because then you can use the bike when you can and when you need the car. You so you use the car when you must, and you use anything else when you can and you use the cargo bike like i don't know 80 percent of the time yes yeah yeah definitely i mean we've seen it as well in uh some of the other data that i've seen around how people use their e-bikes but i think the um the thing that i oftentimes probably haven't i'm definitely guilty of this uh don't have kids so uh yeah it's when you start getting kids that really uh i think the the conversation changes a lot and and as you say yeah when i worked at uber that was the biggest uh we actually had a whole program of work around that to try and work out how (laughs) we'd notice all these people all of a sudden stopped using uber and it turns out that they'd become parents and that was the reason is because they were like oh they all bought cars and then they just drove everywhere you know yeah I mean, I've I've done the whole car sharing, carrying two kids with like car seats and everything. And it's kind of impractical, of course. So that's also sort of leading us up to the fact that subscription is really good. I think that's a key factor for us that you have your own vehicle and you have it set up with like the child seats and the pannier bags and the whatever you need to make it work. So, and also, I mean, it's really important to to solve women's problems as well but we are also very like adamant on not being very like gender we're not like uh, female oriented we strive to have like a very uh, gender neutral sort of communication and and brand and everything so i mean there's a lot of guys also who use it and we also have like single men customers so it's not like this is not like a girly girl thing. It's something that's like, it's a really useful tool. And it also, cargo bikes, uh, like box bikes, they can be kind of intimidating because it's uh, compared to a regular bike, the the sort of uh, box and the prolonged front is something that you have to get used to. So if you're a kind of a timid uh, bike rider, it's difficult to sort of get your head around that. But the, the type of bike that we use, it's a compact mid-tail and that has smaller wheels. It has a lower point of gravity and it's sort of really, we see that women aren't afraid of it. And we get like really good feedback that people uh, and women, like especially like shorter and weaker riders, they they don't feel intimidated by actually using it. So we had customers coming and saying that they haven't ridden a bike in 15 years and then they get on and they put two kids in the back and they just come with a smile that goes around their head when they come back so it's 
<laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, and the, I mean, I know that the business has been growing very quickly. Like you've you've gone from only a couple of bikes in in early twenty twenty to now you've got uh, several hundred out in Oslo, and you're looking to expand all over you know Norway and then Scandinavia as well. And that was obviously part of the the pitch. You know, can you take me through the subscription aspect to it? Because I think that's you know we've talked on the podcast a lot about subscription, but it's been for, you know, the, the couple of companies that we've been talking to has been like Van Move or Unagi who are making scooters or bikes or whatever. And typically for commuters, like they're talking about it as a commuter thing. And they're saying, look, you're mentally comparing it to someone who might take a public transport commute or might be taking a car commute and then a park, uh, you know, and then parking. And so they're kind of, you know, th- 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 they've got, they know what that cost is. And then they're switching that out. What are you finding people who are coming to you and looking for subscription? Like what are the, what are the alternatives that they're trading off from? And how does that work in terms of the, the money that might be on the table for, for that as a business? We, we tend to see that uh, when people sort of um, get their eyes open to e-bike or to cargo bikes, they will normally have a budget around like a budget around maybe two to three thousand euros and then they will either they will buy they will sort of stretch to the actual price point where these like quality bikes that will last come to and they will feel that it's a massive investment to begin with or they will buy this like subpar bike that will maybe last a season or two and then they won't be super happy because the components will not last and it will be difficult to fix it and maintain it and everything. So they, they, a lot of people normally compare that to um, our service. And we are at the moment at the price point around uh, 180 euros with uh, insurance and locks and maintenance and also here in Oslo winter tires included. And this is per month, 180 euros per month. Yeah, per month. Uh, and what you see is that over a period of like three years, the value you get as a customer compared to if you were to do the maintenance and do the, I mean, we include uh, like a cleaning and lubing of the bike. So it's like, and it's not really an aesthetic thing. It's a functional thing. Uh, at the moment we use vendor bikes, so they need more care than i mean a a bike that's designed for a fleet operation so this thing you get is like is that the uptime and the very fast response if there's something wrong with it or if it's stolen you get the new bike really quickly so all of these things all of this hassle and all of these barriers are sort of baked into the price that you your responsibilities moved over to us and from a business point of view we get i mean People charge the bikes themselves. They take care of them and they park them quite safely. And they also like follow the recommendations for locking them up. So we don't really have that much theft, like yeah. fingers crossed, knock on wood, all of that. And uh, like compared to like the, the level of care and responsibility in the users is way higher than anything we've seen in shared. I mean, uh, so it's so it's kind of people perceive them as their bikes and. Another thing from a user perspective is that 
I mean, e-bikes are in very rapid development at the moment, so it's the, uh, kind of a transitional technology. You don't really know how the how what the capacity of the batteries will be like in three years, or how how sort of the theft anti theft technology would will have come. So buying a bike now is is like a little bit like cars. It's in three years time. You don't really know what the what the best things you can get in the market really is. So uh, over time, it's not a bad. I mean, the the figures add up. So it's a it's not like a really bad investment to do the the renting as well or the subscription. Yeah, I mean, I I can for sure see it. I have a very expensive mountain e mountain bike which has sat in my garage, uh, partly broken. That's uh, like it stopped charging. <laughs> It's just one of these things where it is deeply frustrating because it requires me to go down and take it to the to the shop, but they are not incentivized to like really take care of it. You know, it's not like I, you know, there's a there's an element I think for for these products over just standard consumer product as they have been able to do in the past, especially when there's kind of ongoing. You know, you might have ongoing niggles or or things like that that could really help. And and when you're incentivized to help your customer succeed for as long as they are. I think there's a really, really good match there, especially when it comes to things like utility, as you mentioned. You know, if you're, I think about it as, as a parent uh, who who might be looking at it and saying, you know, I, I want to be able to ensure that if there's anything that goes wrong with it, I need to be able to take my kid to daycare, that it would be, you, you can get that thing switched out relatively quickly uh, or fixed, I think is, is really, really smart. So can you take me through the bikes that you're using? Because you mentioned the compact Mintel, but I, I didn't know what that was until I saw a picture of it. So maybe just talk me through what that looks like. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, at the moment, we're using bikes from four different producers and that they have slightly different characteristics. Uh, but that's mainly because of the supply situation. But their uh, common sort of denominator is that they're built for cargo. So they have a loading capacity from 180 to 200 kilos and they have relatively small tires. So the some of them have 20 inch tires with kind of fat, slightly fat, like 2.4 or something like that tires. I'm not super technical on that. Uh, so you get a low point of gravity and you also have like a very sturdy frame so you can actually like put kids in and not be afraid of it falling over and it what it does is that when when you sort of sit it feels like you ride the bike instead of the bike riding you as some like e-bikes can feel like and it's also when you when you have quite heavy cargo it still feels controllable so and then the other thing about that is also they're quite short so they will go into an elevator or you could put it it's allowed to bring on a train or here in also you can even put it take it on the bus if you get like a flat or something so it has these uh, like dense urban area qualities that very good and it also handles really nicely as a bike and so uh when you mentioned that you, you put uh things for kids on the back so you, they can stack with one they can stack with two there's like a lot of different configurations that you could set the bike up with in terms of how you'd how you'd set it up for a customer Yes, and it's also kind of a life cycle thing because you have some of this. I mean, the, we only we use like regular vendor seats and the accessories that come from the bike vendors. But the thing is that what we've learned is that, and what we've known for a while is that the the bike is like without the accessories and the and the child seats and the rails and the pannier bags and everything. It's it's 
just a bike. But when you add the things, it's a station wagon. It's like it really is a station wagon, and that's. Uh, and we also are working to sort of make it like a life cycle thing, so you can switch out. Like when the kids grow, the bike sort of grows, and the configuration changes with your kids. So at the moment, we haven't really been able to bake that into the subscription, but we're doing that now. Yeah. Can you talk me through that part? Because I know that obviously you've got the bikes, you've got the four bikes that you're using or the bike models that you're using at the moment. But one of the things that I think is most interesting about this story has been that you're looking or considering looking at building your own cargo bike. And and I'd love for you to just talk through that. I mean, how you're obviously early-ish on that journey, but it's one of the things that I've seen from a lot of, a number of companies in this space who are looking to you know, they've started out with a niche. Zuma would be an example of this. Started out with a niche of like, hey, we, we hire e-bikes for gig workers. And then eventually, you know, no, nothing quite is on the market for what we want. We can build our own. And then they built it to a deliberate bike that's built for them. And what would be this? So, you know, what, where are you at on the journey? And then what, what are the kind of characteristics for the things that you'd want to include on that bike? Well, I, I think like in this uh, space, I would say that the, the market leader from the all of the producers is the company Turn. Yes. They make beautiful bikes and they... Uh, have like been really having their ear on the ground, really listening to users and developing the everything, all of the like the super practical utility things like the kickstand, which is like a super overlooked but very unsexy feature, but it's very important for these types of bikes. They've been like just really developing it further and better and improving everything. But from a, a fleet operation point of view, the turn is kind of cumbersome to fix and it has all of these weak points and it's I mean, they have a foldable front thing, like the where the wheel is. No, the the handlebar the steering. Yeah, so the the like the thing up. <laughs> so bad. <at> this. <laughs> I love that. I love the person who runs the bike company can't tell me what the. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Is it, but is it the steering the the handlebars or the the like steering column? Yeah, the steering column. Yeah, it's yeah, the, it's yeah. actually foldable. So, but to me, it feels like, a, and that's making it possible to make it very compact and you put it inside the car, but it's also a weak point. So it's like some of these trade-offs that are super good for like individual use, but from a fleet perspective, like how, how easy is it to maintain? How easy is it to get the rear wheel off everything like that? That's uh, something that needs to sort of, that has the potential to improve. And also, I mean, everything from uh, predictive maintenance and all of the like more smartness and cleverness and technology aspects of the bike, like anti-theft technology, like prediction where like um, having the brake pad give a little ping when it's uh, closing to worn down, all of these things. And I mean, you can do a lot of that with like cross-checking like dumb data, like um, kilometers ridden and the... if you store it outside or inside and all of this, you can sort of learn and just predict from the data you can actually read at the moment. But it's really interesting to see how you can approach it better and also locking technology and tracking and everything. So there's a lot, a lot of potential there and also a lot of potential from the sort of uh, innovation potential in the operational part of things. So we want to like use the the key insights from fleet management and, and bike sharing systems but also offer the customizability and the sort of luxury high end the feeling of a cargo bike that you use as your personal 
car, vehicle or car replacement. Yeah. And I take it when you're developing a bike like that, you would just, you'd want to buy it and then only put it onto your own system. You wouldn't necessarily want to get into your own bike retailing or something. We're not going to see the Cariana e-bike that uh, is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I also, I, I, I think it's also a very interesting aspect to think about the circularity and the sort of remove the planned obsolescence of these. I mean, there is so much. These can be bikes that can last for 15 years. They don't have to sort of crash after the warranty time is over. And I I think those are, uh, I mean, it's not really answering your question. And like where, if that's something that's sold or sold bundled with a service or a franchise or whatever, we don't really know that yet. But I think the, the also the, the thing about uh, a bike or a cargo bike is that you're so depending on it that you need the maintenance and the sort of touch points that make the uptime almost constant or uh, replace if if there's something wrong and everything so i i don't really see that the bike will be sort of it might be sold but i don't think it will will be sold without a sort of holistic service experience yeah and that's also what removes barriers so people who don't really think that this bike can be a part of the solution actually can experience that it is mm. just so i can understand I, I don't know the situation in oslo you're the first person that i've talked to in oslo so what's the kind of infrastructure you know the the infrastructure component like for norway related to you know uh, people feeling safe to go and ride around in these things i, t- I take it norway is probably pretty good like the rest of the scandinavians and has decent infrastructure bike lanes uh, yeah, Oslo is quite good, and uh, that like historically has to do with the fact that there was rail built in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, and also sooner uh, prior to that, because that allowed the city to stay compact. So uh, even I mean there is a lot of differences, but the 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 city isn't like the other Norwegian cities, especially Bergen and Stavanger. They are kind of bloated because they never invested in rail, and then they built a car-based city, and then the sort of distances are uh, and the culture is sort of set. So um, in many ways, uh, Norway is like closer to North America in terms of uh, traffic engineering and planning, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and also like car culture and love for cars. Mm. But Oslo is uh, kind of countering that. And I think that there is like a couple of factors going in there. And that's um, there is kind of a big uh, forest around the city that's uh, regulated, not so it's not allowed to build in it. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a limit to the expansion of the city, north, east, and west. And then where it could be expanded, there's rail. So, um, I mean, as for smart cities, um, Oslo, the smartest move ever done in Oslo was to uh, limit the actual bloating of the city. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because it's walkable and bikeable. Uh, and it's kind of hilly, so, um, uh, but, and bike infrastructure-wise, it's improving a lot each year. There was a plan starting in 2015 uh, that was kind of a start point, and then there was a change of government the year after, and then the just pace has really increased. Yeah, I mean, all the bike people uh, and the bike activists uh, wish that the pace was even bigger, but there's also resistance, of course, from 
people living outside wanting to drive in. Can only imagine. But it is interesting as well that I feel like these businesses that you talk about, you know, the the subscription businesses for e-bikes or specifically e-cargo bikes emerge in part when women feel safe to ride. So one of the big things that, you know, I think about for a lot of cities, uh, either in the US or in Australia, New Zealand, some of these other countries where I think our focus has traditionally been, has been that, you know, if you were to go and put a kid on the back of a cargo bike, it's not always it doesn't always feel necessarily that safe and 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 i think that's changing and certainly uh, there's a kind of strength in numbers and one of the things that i've really noted has been that the the number of cargo bikes has really taken off and like if you look at the the press coming out of eurobike this year it seems like cargo bikes are where it's at everybody's sort of worked out that these lightweight electric vehicles are really good for freight and things but it's the family it's the willingness to take kids and 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 use them as as family vehicles that i think is really interesting and and kind of tied to and relevant to infrastructure as well yeah i mean even if they're compact these bikes kind of feel like substantial so you kind of feel slightly protected on the road and that's the reason why the the first cargo bike we got was like a massive uh, box bike three-wheeler we just called it potemkin (laughs) <laughs> because it was like <laughs> but it, it was like I could ride in the middle of the road uh, cars honking behind me of course but I could feel still feel safe with like three kids in and they were like everything was you had this clear barrier and you were visible as well and that's also something that it's like it, you need to have you can't be too narrow it has to have this like width and you have to feel kind of protected by a solid frame and everything so it kind of helps Mm. But I mean, yeah, traditionally, the um, the gender balance in biking here in Oslo is like 70-30. And we have more female, like, I mean, a lot of our, we have both. I mean, um, a lot of our customers are families, but primary customer is more female than men. So 70% women or 70% men biking? Like regular, it's 70 men and 30 yes. women. Right. And that, uh, as we know, that uh, percentage will rise. The the female percentage would rise with the safer infrastructure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely see that. And, and I think as well, you know, the access to vehicles and making them available in a way that feels appropriate. And, you know, as you say, someone who is just coming to this for the first time and hasn't ridden a bike for 15 years and then going, I can, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start or I don't want to drop, you know, 5,000 euros on a bike that, I'm not, I don't feel super comfortable. I don't, you know, all those things. Being able to take a customer on that journey, I think is obviously really important and a big part of the micro-mobility yeah. adoption story. And you know, you know what they say about the, uh, how you, how you can tell if a person has an e-bike? No, uh, I don't know this. They will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like veganism and CrossFit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, that's very funny. I hadn't heard that one before. Well, uh, I love this. I I would like to ask uh, some wider questions as well, because I think the story of uh, the company as well is also quite interesting. And so, so you'd started this originally back in 2020, but like you're, you're growing and and talk me through the, the, I I don't know many Norwegian startups. So take me through the, the story of how one grows in Norway. Is there access to capital? Is this a traditional venture business? Do you think of it as a traditional venture backed business or where are you finding capital for being able to grow this? 
I mean, I have to go uh, quite a bit back then because I started, I'm like by profession, I am a UX and service designer. That was where I started out. Uh, so I started my own agency in 2017 and I wanted it to be like a triple bottom line, like people planet profit uh, business. And for me, the easiest way to do that without just like making reports, it was like working on shifting people away from cars to bikes. So very soon I started working as a consultant, making like a bike insurance service for an actor here in Norway. And we also did the pilot for bike subscription, but that was with like regular e-bikes. That was 2018 or something and then I also got into like the activism part of biking so I was head of the Oslo chapter of the cyclist association here for a while and I'm like as a person not really super I'm I'm like as I said previously I'm more interested in the bike as a means of transformation as uh, improvement of urban spaces so that was my kind of uh, uh, into that and then from the design agency we were able to like build up kind of a surplus or a buffer so when the pandemic hit we had some available resources and we had um, some money to pay them yep. <laughs> and then um, so we actually bootstrapped the whole thing ourselves from like I don't know Easter to uh, the summer uh, working with like getting the brand and uh, everything up and sort of just making the framework for the whole operation. And then before the summer, we got two angel investors. One of them is Katrina, who is now the CEO of the company. So, uh, and uh, another who was like, all of them were like, there were two to begin with. And that allowed me to start working full time. Uh, so from August, I worked full time. And then uh, maybe, a year after we were two employees so we were like everyone was kind of just there was I mean because of the pandemic some people had the severance pay and some people so it was like really just insane amount of serendipity everything just came together and like people were like floating by and say hey I can help you out and I have capacity and I know this and I can get bikes and so it was like it was just unreal really yeah um so uh and then when we, the last fall, we had this uh, uh, friends and family round uh, where we had, uh, I'm kind of part of a couple of uh, uh, independent contractor networks and stuff like that. So people there will work eager to invest. And, um, and we've had uh, some, I mean, there has been like, we, we've been able to secure our like fully professional investments before this summer we secured some and now we are very i mean we have qualified for some investments so we will be announcing some juicy news in august hopefully (laughs) ah i clearly i clearly i did this podcast too early all right then well i I will make sure that uh (laughs) i'll see if i can work out how to get that data before uh before i publish but yeah the the growth that you've had, I mean, obviously you're you're sustaining now two for how many how many bikes have you got on the network? You had two hundred and something when I was when I was talking to you. So, uh, no, we are we had two hundred customers on different uh, platforms, but we I mean, end of the year this year we'll be at three hundred. Yep. So we have uh, close to two hundred bikes now, and but we've also experimented with other i mean in the sort of shortage of bike situation there has been 
we've um, like made some other attempts to see if uh, we made the um, service like a maintenance subscription, where is which is basically like a fast track and a um, loyalty membership for other people with e-bikes and cargo bikes. Catch you. And yes. also tested if like open bookings would from on the workshop would be like uh, something we could funnel into subscriptions. But um, those experiments will be left. I mean, they they are viable, both of them, but it's taking up too much of our capacity. So we have to focus on, I mean, what we uh, the core core business and further developing that. Yeah, yeah. And has has that funding for the bikes been like predominantly debt uh, debt funding, or has it been because obviously those? Are, oh my yeah. god, do, you have, do we have an hour? <laughs> no. Um, to begin with, we did the uh, private funding, so it was actually me and my husband's mortgage. Yeah. Mortgage. Uh, thank you, Froda. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice of you. <laughs> and then also after a while, we were actually able to get. I mean, there is no like bikes isn't really a financial asset so there's no like um you can't really use it as a value to loan off of yes so but after a while we were actually able to get like regular bank loans for some of it and then we have some like a leasing fleet leasing contract for some of them and um we've also uh, just paid for some of them as well using equity so it's been kind of a i mean it, it would be so much easier if we were doing cars. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is the thing that, that's been so fascinating to watch in the industry of like the companies that have done, you know, the, the early days of sharing or any of the shared services was all paying for it out of straight out of equity, which was insanely expensive, like a very, very expensive way to be able to test. And then, uh, you know, I think Zuma was really the first to have nailed that at any scale where they, they managed to get a mixture of debt and equity funding for, for their expansion. But it's also just, as you say, it would be a lot easier if you're doing cars. It's just a far more mature you know area of finance. And I, I think that's one of the areas that e-bike funding in general, uh, you know, all, finding out all the kind of problems that can be solved, you know, the, and, and working out like technology. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to get all of these things if you... You know, especially if you've got GPS tracking technology and anti-theft passes, but you know, pieces on the bike and all that sort of stuff. I I think also it's a really easy thing that the government can do to, I mean, just providing a financial instrument that makes it easy to sort of asset finance like viable micromobility. Mm-hmm. That would be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have no more questions on my side. Uh, is there anything that you would like to, uh, that, that you know, you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you about, just out of curiosity? I mean, when I won the the beautiful award at the Micromobility Conference, I was like so blown away because I wasn't really expecting that at all. So I didn't even manage to say fund us. We might look weird, but fund us. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> No, but I mean, it's we could talk a bit about the gender perspective because I mean, as a female founder, it's it's not really possible to like pinpoint whether we are met with some form of bias in meetings and stuff. But if you look at the actual numbers on on risk capital funding uh, that goes to female-led and female-founded companies, it's kind of dire, really. So, um, like, personally, I feel that whenever I go to meetings, especially with new people who, who don't really know us and, and maybe especially, like, uh, VCs and, and funding, people we need to talk to about funding, 
it like it feels like a lot of the time I'm spending maybe like half the meeting to establish a baseline to prove that I'm like not entirely clueless of what I'm talking about. And I have like substantial experience and maybe expertise even in like service development, digital and also mobility and, and advisory. But I still have to like spend so much time providing that I'm not like an idiot <laughs> and it's super annoying. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of fed up with that. Yeah. So that's, uh, and also, I mean, I think in the, sort of the general like space of innovation, I think it's really important to acknowledge that if you want diversity and if you want like different perspectives and different points of use into solving things differently, then you need to actually not just look for something that's completely similar to you you have to like I, and i mean i i know we sort of I, I tend to like come off as weird i mean the one of the judges at the contest said i was high level weird which is the be- best compliment ever <laughs> <laughs> yes i loved it as well that was yeah. but but the thing is that i mean this is you you can't really you can't really like make anything change if you just like try to make the same people change things yes so that's my general um, recommendation for people who have uh, wanted to like dry dried gunpowder or what it's called like money to spend funding is like really just yeah take a chance on other types of people find the high level weirdos who uh, who are trying to change the world <laughs> with their uh, <laughs> with their micro mobility yeah. businesses well look i really appreciate your time and i and, and it's been uh, such a joy getting to know you over the last uh, over the last couple of months as we've done some work together for for europe and 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 for this yeah likewise thank you i really i really you know hats off to what you're doing there in norway and i really hope i can get up there at some point and and see it in action but it was, I think, also just such a such a wonderful tale of like, you know, we need to be building more services. And I think your call out that most of the micromobility services that have been built till now have been built for men is one that I uh, have been guilty of perpetuating and, and I'm certainly like keen to do better in terms of, yeah, representing others who are, who are building stuff. So thank you. And uh, yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure. If folks want to track you down, how would they how would they find out more about we? They can, I mean, we're in uh, all the social platforms and we're on we.no and there will be an English site launched at we.bike eventually. And um, uh, I wouldn't recommend my Twitter because it's very Norwegian and random. So, um, yeah. Okay. Just catch you. Look it up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the we uh, the we branding I think is probably one of the most fun that I've come across in the entire micro mobility space because it totally captures the experience I have when I hop on a on an e bike. Yeah, I mean it's uh, we've used a brilliant Norwegian illustrator called uh, Maria Konstantsen. She's awesome, uh, but it was also, of course, due to the fact that the uh, when we were launching, we didn't have any great product photo, and we also uh, didn't really have the bikes at the time so it was uh, kind of a pragmatic approach but yeah and I mean the one of our core values is that it's joyful uh, and uh, that's something that we really want to come across in our brand work in our communication and every in our culture as well you're nailing it <laughs> thank you yes well hey absolute pleasure thank you so much Karianna thank you uh, and looking forward to catching up soon we will bye